Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 7. We'll be in Luke 7, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Luke 7, 36 through 50. And as Brian said, I am from Raleigh, North Carolina. I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I know that's maybe a, a good thing for some of you and others might associate that with a like for University of Tennessee football. So I'm sorry uh, that already made several enemies. Just know I love Jesus and hopefully that can bridge the gap. So um, I just come from Raleigh, North Carolina and I celebrate. I celebrate how thankful I am. I feel like Paul addressing the Colossians in one sense in the sense that he says, I'm thankful since I've heard of your faith and of your love for all the saints. And I can just say for years, I've heard testimony of the faith of the people of Grace Church and of your love for one another and of your love for this city and for the nations. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful it's an honor to be here in front of you. It's an honor to know your pastors and I just want you to know I am thankful for your pastors and I just pray with all my heart you understand what a gift you have in them. What a gift you have in them. Several of them are dear, dear friends to my wife and I. They are people. They are not superheroes. <laughs> They're limited. They're not all sufficient. That's reserved for Jesus. But they are faithful and I love them. I love, love their families, love them deeply. And so I encourage you, you pray for them. You encourage them. You make their ministry a joy. You thank God for them and for this church. Together you have a mission to this city. You be a part of that. You joyfully engage this city with the gospel. And so, friends, I'm thankful, thankful to be here, and I want to read the Bible, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to dive in to this wonderful passage that speaks of forgiveness and freedom from shame. Forgiven and freed from shame. I'm just going to read verses 47 through 50, but we're going to look at, like I said, verses 36 through 50. 47 through 50 say this, therefore I tell you. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he looks at the woman and he says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, have your way. Be who we cannot be. Fill us up with your love and work through us love for each other for this city, for the lost in and around us. 
Father, we ask that you would pour out your all-sufficient grace. I pray that we would stand astonished that we sinners, by faith in you, could be saved. We would stand with jaws dropped that you would go with us, that you would be our peace. So, Father, please, all glory be to Christ, our King. All glory forever and ever. In this moment, crush our pride-filled hearts and make us humble. Encourage our weary souls and satisfy us in you. Remind us of your promises and give us faith that what you say is true. All glory be to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Shame. Shame is an often misunderstood concept, but we experience it all the time. We might even use the word shame. So I got the privilege to spend a little time with Brian Smith last night, pastor here, and uh, as we were there, he told me that he has a puppy, but that puppy is, was not running around our feet, and I wasn't sure as to why. And he said that the puppy needed some discipline. Puppy had to be out of the house because the puppy eats too much food. And so he said that there was a time when the puppy would just eat and eat and eat and got so big that they would take this puppy to the vet and the vet would do puppy shaming, you know? Like, this puppy is eating too much. This puppy is ginormous. You know, I don't know if it used that word, but it was puppy shaming. And so he was sharing with me this idea that this puppy has gotten too big, had to go on a diet, these kind of things. And so shame filled, you know, you got to do better, you know, we got to do better with this puppy. And then I began to think, we've all had these moments of I should have and I didn't. I should have done this, but I haven't. You've experienced that time when you've gone to the doctor and they say, I think you might need to eat a little differently. You might need to shed a few pounds. You might have gone to the dentist and they're like, I don't think you're brushing enough. Or when was the last time you flossed? You've heard these things. You've felt that moment. And some people, that's why they don't come to church. They view it as a space where if they show up, they'll just be reminded that their life doesn't measure up. Their life falls short of something, and so it's just better to hide, because that's what shame does. Shame distances. Shame hides. Shame doesn't like to be in public. It's a sense of unworthiness. I don't measure up. Ed Welch says this in a wonderful article. He says, shame identifies that we are unacceptable, dirty and disgraced. We are sent away. We're distanced from people and God's promises. We notice that life can feel more like death, and so we feel shame, he says. We feel unacceptable because of our own sin. We also become unacceptable because our association with things connected with death, 
such as we're weak, right? We, we're not omnicompetent. We can't be everywhere. We have weaknesses, and our association with those weaknesses can make us feel unacceptable or shame. He goes on to say sometimes even physical disease. That's the way it was for the lepers, right? Leper, leper, unclean, get away. That's what you do. And it can even happen with sin toward us from others. Why do you think those who have gone through abuse don't like to talk about the abuse? It's a sense of shame. What did I do to possibly even craft the scenario? You, you begin to feel like you've done something to create the abuse. It's shame when it was sin against you. And you want to hide. You don't want that story out in front of others. Ed Welch says, no matter how sin and death get its hands on us, it brings shame. And shame must receive the appropriate remedy. Shame can come because you don't meet others' expectations of yourself. And you fear that they're not going to accept you. Shame can come because you said you would do something and you forgot. Has that ever happened? Yes. And what happens sometimes when that happens, and it happens in my life, I will sigh. I'll go, and I'll drop my head. Why do you think of Psalm 3 when the psalmist is speaking says, you're the lifter of my head? It's because shame causes the head to drop. It's disappointment. I blew it. Shame can come because you've been mistreated and you feel dirty and you hide. Sometimes sufferers carry shame because they think they should handle suffering differently or they're being told they should suffer differently. One thing that I regularly say to those who have experienced loss, especially right before a funeral, I will say two things. One is some of the simplest, most common passages in the Bible become the sweetest in moments of suffering. But also I'll say this, don't let somebody else tell you how to grieve. Don't allow somebody else's expectations of you to be how you must perform in this moment because if not, sometimes you carry shame. Sufferers many times, that's why we act like we have it all together, right? We come in, we look great, and we struggle to share. This is hard. Shame wants to hide. But there's a remedy. It has to do with not hiding. It has to do with coming to someone who is safe. It has to do with coming to someone who first came to us. It has to do with Jesus. And in this passage today, what we most think of when we think of shame is, I really have sinned. I've sinned against God Almighty, and what I did was wrong. And we're all guilty. Not one person on planet Earth escapes that shame. We're all guilty. And many times we don't only experience the shame in the moment, but we carry it around and it's this huge burden. And we beat ourselves up 
thinking that somehow that's going to solve our pain. Or we act like it's not that bad. And let me just give you a note. That's not going to solve your shame problem either. Your sin's worse than you think it is. It's against Almighty God. You've traded Him in for a lie. And in the middle of Luke, in chapter 7, our Savior comes and He has an answer for shame. He has an answer for shame and we see Jesus teaching on forgiveness because what forgiveness does is it washes the dirty clean. And those who should not be accepted all of a sudden because of the grace and blood of Jesus find acceptance. Those who should be far off are brought near. Luke chapter 7 is a story of forgiveness. And he uses three characters, three characters in the story to teach us aspects of forgiveness, but also three characters that teach us about shame. Here are the three characters. Character number one is the shamer. Character number two is the shamed. And character number three is the one who conquers shame. Character number one is the shamer. That is the Pharisee. And he teaches us that many times we don't see our need for forgiveness. Character number two is the shamed. And that is forgiveness is found at the feet of Jesus. And character number three is the conqueror of shame, which is in him is where forgiveness is found. So we're just going to spend just a little bit of time looking at each one together as we look at the text So let's look at the first one, the shamer. Many times we don't see our need for forgiveness. Listen to the passage and let's read it together. Um, I'll read it, you just uh, read it silently there, but let's look at it together. Luke 7 verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed the feet with the anointment. ointment. Verse 39. Now we're back to the character that we're focusing on now. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, at least he thought he said to himself, but Jesus knew he was saying something to himself. And he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Just focus in on his demeaning demeanor towards the woman this is what the shamer does dehumanizes demeans puts down he's thinking of himself as superior in this moment but not only to her but to Jesus this is textbook self-righteousness he's a shamer And then verse 40 goes on and it says, And Jesus answering said to him, (laughs) notice, 
He didn't ask anything out loud. The man was talking to himself, and so Jesus answers him. (laughs) Answers because nothing is hidden from Jesus. So when you think you've got to fight this battle on your own and fix yourself up before you come to Jesus, note to self, he already knows. He already knows what you're going through. So why don't you just process it with him? That's what a lament is. It's taking the pain and going vertical. It's taking the pain and taking it to the Lord. But the Pharisee didn't know this. He's talking to himself. And so Jesus answers him and says, Simon. It gets personal. This Pharisee's got a name. I've got something to say to you. And he says, okay, say it, teacher. And so Jesus goes on and he tells a story. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is about 20 months wages, almost two years worth of income. And the other had 50 denarii, which is about two months income. Jesus goes on and he says in verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Then, looking at the woman and turning to her, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Luke 7 verse 47, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now why did he say that? He who is forgiven little, loves little. He's teaching us something about the first character, about the Pharisee. He's teaching us something about self-righteousness. This Pharisee, this first character, he is the law keeper, even a law teacher. He's a shamer. He's self-righteous. And Jesus is not pleased. The text begins to expose self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is thinking of yourself as better or supreme than someone else. It can be you look down on someone morally or you verbally elevate yourself or you silently judge. We are all guilty of this. Every one of us. Marriages are characterized by thinking we are better than our spouses at times. Parenting is characterized by not an understanding of our own sin, but many times a looking down at our children thinking we are more supreme. Roommates are characterized by this thought that I am better than them at fill in the blank, cleaning up after myself, 
I do better at my diet. I'm a better student. No one escapes this, although we would really like to. Self-righteousness is more aware of faults than grace. Self-righteousness says things like, I'm better than that. I would never do that. I can't believe they said that or did that to me. I deserve better. This is all the language of self-righteousness. And lest you think I'm only preaching to you, I'm preaching to me, all guilty of thinking we are better. But I want you to know, self-righteousness, this I am better than you mentality is a cancer. And hear me. It is a cancer that undermines communities that are meant to be characterized by grace. It destroys relationships. It poisons homes. It sours souls. And it divides churches. Jesus is serious about this self-righteous man. It's not okay. And what does Jesus do to the self-righteous? He applies law. This is, a, this is a paradigm that is really helpful when you're trying to figure out what does this person need? Do they need to be shown areas that they've done wrong or do they need to be shown first a sense of compassion and grace and forbearance how do you discern it well the self-righteous gets the law the self-condemned get this sense of patient grace what does Jesus do here he smells it he sees it because he knows the man's heart the man is a shamer he has made himself supreme to this woman and what does Jesus do This woman that you're saying you're better than, she's kissed my feet, she's wiped my feet, you've done none of this. Broken the law. Broken the law. That's what he's doing. Because the law exposes that we're not as good as we thought we were. The law shows us that we fall far shorter than we ever thought we did. Now make note, the law doesn't change anyone. It just exposes your need for change. Christ changes. And we get that so confused when it comes to parenting sometimes. We believe our demeanor, that firm tone, that yelling, that that's what's going to change them. No. How many kids have said, wow, you yelled at me and now I love Jesus? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. The law exposes the heart. It doesn't change the heart. Jesus comes with the law 
But I want you to know, (laughs) Jesus giving the law was not simply so that this Pharisee would conform to an external standard, but it was so that he would check his affections for a beautiful Savior. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Jesus giving the law was not just so that he would start doing better and conform to some external standard. It was so that he would check his affections for a beautiful Savior. Look at the passage. What does he say? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. This is very Jesus-centric. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. What is Jesus saying? This is more than just about a woman who is crying. She is having affections for her Savior. The law was meant to push this Pharisee out of his shaming and to realize he too is in need of forgiveness. But here's the deal. The one who is self-righteous has a perception problem. That's why Jesus says in Luke 7, verse 47, he says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she has loved much. Here's the phrase, look at it with me. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What's he saying? You too, Pharisee, should see that you're in as great of need for mercy as she is, and yet you're saying you need to be forgiven little. And that's why you love little. You've got a perception problem. And this is why Jesus is so firm in Matthew chapter 7 against the self-righteous. You know the passage, right? Judge not lest you be judged. One that's massively ripped out of context and, you know, plastered all over the place. Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to read it to you. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. That should make you slow down. As you judge your neighbor, this is not a passage on anti-discernment. You need to be discerning. This is about condemning interpersonal judgment tainted with self-righteousness. He is condemning this interpersonal, I'm judging you because I believe I'm better. And he's like, if you want to play that game with the judgment you pour out on somebody else, it will be measured back to you. And he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, or you could think your friend's eye, your parent's eye, your roommate's eye, your spouse's eye, your children's eye. Why do you see the speck that is in their eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Hear the words. You hypocrite, he says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is a little opportunity for you to speak back. 
what is the difference between a log and a speck? It's, it's what? Size. That's right. Very good. Very good. Participation. That was well done. Pat yourself on the back. It's a size thing. It's a visibility thing. You've got this massive log in your eye and you cannot see. You hypocrite. You've got to remove the log so that then you can see what's in your brother or sister's eye. I don't know about you, but I have problems at times defrosting my windshield. So, like, because it's counterintuitive. If in a calm moment you look it up, how do you defrost a foggy windshield while you're driving? It says you lower the temperature in the car. Well, okay, here's when it normally happens for me. I'm driving, it's freezing cold in the car, and now I have put off hot air, and I know my family would say amen, and I've put off hot air in my car, and now it's fogging up. The last thing I want to do is to make it colder in that space. So in that moment, I freeze up. And I'm like, okay, is it get colder or is it get hotter? And so I'll turn it up because I want it hotter. So I'll make it hotter. And then it just gets foggier and foggier. And I don't understand why this isn't working. All I know is I am not able to see. It's a visibility problem. And if I don't fix this, we have a major issue. I'm going to wreck. I'm going to hit somebody. This is going to be a problem. Jesus is saying, if we don't fix this, you're going to destroy your soul. And you're going to hurt many in the process. It's a visibility problem. We've got to do it the way Jesus says. We have to, even though it feels counterintuitive, we've got to turn up the AC, roll down the windows in the cold weather to watch the visibility become clearer. And as much as our hearts scream at us, they are my problem. Or as much as our hearts scream at us, I am better than them, I would never do that. Counterintuitive is Jesus says, you are your biggest problem, not them. That's what he says to the Pharisee. You thought you were better, and I'm just telling you, this woman has shown what it looks like to worship and to adore, and you haven't. It's a visibility issue. Jesus is saying that this self-righteous focusing on other people's sins rather than what he says we should do, get the log out of our own eye. Let me just spell it out. It means that we stop. We are still. We sit with Jesus and we say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners, present tense. We can say, were it not for grace, I'm capable of doing exactly what they did. And although I might not be tempted as they are, I'm tempted with many other devastating sins that I want to minimize. Were it not for grace, I would lash out in lust or greed or pride or jealousy or I would cheat or steal. I would hurt. I would speak a harsh word. Were it not for grace, that's what he means by take the log out of your own eye. Sit with Jesus and be honest 
about what's going on in your own heart. And friends, this one discovery will be the most freeing discovery of your life. It will set you free from insecurity. It will make you patient in relationships. It will help you with your anger towards those who hurt you. It will help you in your marriage or with your close friends. That knowing who you are apart from grace, you and I are self-righteous sinners. A.W. Tozer says this, talking about putting away the log in your own eye. Put away all defense. Make no attempt to excuse him or herself in your own eyes before the Lord. Whoever defends himself will only have himself for his defense. He will have no other. But let him come defenseless before the Lord, and he will have for his defender no less than God himself. Don't defend yourself. Come honestly. Come open. I'm a broken mess. And if you come that way, you'll have the Lord as your defender. So dear friends, Jesus is really clear. This Pharisee mentality. He spills more ink on the Pharisee than he does the others. It's a problem. And yet... This Jesus is saying to the Pharisee, until you believe you have great need, you will love little. So the problem is not just his visibility of sins, but it's actually setting his gaze upon the Savior. He is desperate. He is needy. He needs to surrender. He needs to repent. And he needs to draw near, like our second character, the shamed. The shamer forgets the need for forgiveness, the shamed, teaches us that forgiveness is found at the feet. And the last two are much quicker as we run through the text. But lo notice this. This woman, the woman who is shamed, she has no name in the text. She's unnamed. Some want to say that she might be Mary of Mark 14 or John 11, but as you lay these two scenarios over top of each other, they're different stories. So this is not the same woman. Who is this woman? Here's all we get about her. Verse 37, behold, she's a woman of the city, a sinner. And then when the Pharisee talks about her, it says, you, if he would only know what sort of woman this was who was touching him, a sinner. That's what we have of her. So if that's your title in public, what does that mean? Can you imagine? Whether it was one sin or whether it was many, this is her title in the city. The woman of the city, a sinner. Scarlet letter A on steroids. There's this sense of she is known by her faults. She is declared dirty, rejected. Imagine the looks that she gets when she walks around. And shame, what does shame do? We've already said it hides. Shame does not draw near, it stays away. It feels sent away. And that's why it's so remarkable when you read in this text what she does. 
Shame does what? Say it with me. Shame hides. Say that with me. Shame hides. What does she do in this text? Look at it with me. Verse 37. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in a Pharisee's house, let's pause. (laughs) I don't know how, but she's heard that Jesus is different than everyone else. There's something about Jesus that might not treat people like everyone else has treated me. There's something different about Jesus. Her greatest dreams realized. If this is true, if this Jesus might treat me differently than everyone else in my life, when she hears, he's there. Shame hides. She runs into a law keeper's, law teacher's house because she needs Jesus. That's what the shamed do. They run to the feet of Jesus. Oh, dear friends, and what did she do when she ran there? It says in verse 37, she brought expensive ointment, an alabaster flask of ointment, multiple, multiple months of income, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping weeping why was she weeping we aren't told but probably this mixture of I am a gross sinner and he is a glorious savior it is just look at who I'm in the presence of one that would accept me and include me and she is at his feet and she is just weeping and wiping his feet Here is one who is worthy of worship and doesn't push sinners away. That's why she was there. Oh, dear friends, the shamed need Jesus. So whether you find yourself today currently battling with sin repeatedly over and over and you're trying to hide it from the world, I promise you that will not solve your sin problem or whether you have confessed your sin, but you're burdensomely carrying around this sense of shame as an identity marker, I am this type of person. Or maybe even do less to your own fault, but to the sins done to you by others, and you're carrying around a history of shame because of how people have treated you. Know this, No matter what the cause of the shame, you and I cannot get rid of shame ourselves. We can't do it. Where shame sends away, God draws near. Where shame makes us feel dirty, God makes things new and washes us clean. Where shame cries because it is rejected, Christ comforts and brings acceptance. The only remedy, 
The only remedy is like what we see one chapter later is the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she just says, if I can just touch him, that's all I need. If I can just touch the hem of his garment and she's healed, that's what the shame-filled need. Not hiding, but touching the Savior. And obviously I'm not talking about physical touching, but spiritually drawing near stopping and being in the presence of Jesus sometimes I'm just not sure we really believe what Jesus says it's too good to be true right Matthew 11 when he says come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened I guarantee you he includes shamed in there weary heavy burdened by so many things you come to me he says I'm gentle and lowly You come to me and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. Friends, we will not find rest by some self-improvement program, hiding our sin, not sharing it with some trusted people who will gospel us and care for us. We will not have our sin problem solved. God has designed it that the relief comes through confession of the sin to him and the receiving of all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus on the cross. Our only hope is the blood of Calvary. That's it. And so many of you are so paralyzed because you don't know how to get rid of it, but you keep stuffing it down and stuffing it down and stuffing it down, and you're like David. He says, it feels like my bones are wasting away. Let this precious woman of Luke 7, that sinner, let her teach us some lessons. Where with all of our mess, we run to the feet of Jesus and we just weep. Defenseless, no excuses. I am this. It'll be some of the most freeing words you could ever articulate. I have sinned in this way. Father, forgive me. And that leads us to our final character. The shamer and the shamed alike come and received grace from the conqueror of shame. The only remedy for self-righteousness is to come to the conqueror of shame. The only remedy for the sinner, the shamed, is to come to the conqueror of shame. It is Jesus himself. Forgiveness is ours in Christ. Look at Luke 7 as we finish up in these last two verses and he said to her your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins so the question is who are we coming to we're coming to Jesus We're coming to Jesus. What does this passage teach us? He alone has the authority to forgive sins. He alone has the ability to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, He conquered shame on the cross. But also I want you to know who else this is. Who is Jesus? Who is this conqueror of shame? He is an advocate and a defender. 
I don't know if you noticed that in the text, but when the shamer brought this woman's faults to Jesus, what does Jesus do? He defends her. You never did this, but she washed my feet. You never did this, but she wept at my feet. Jesus is a defender for the shame-filled individuals. He is an advocate for you. Friends, this is why one of the most precious verses in all of the scriptures, 1 John 2, 1, he says, I write this to you so that you wouldn't sin, but if you do sin, <laughs> I love that. I write this so that you won't sin, hate sin, stop sinning, but if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The self-righteous must know there's only one righteous one. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the one who is battling with shame must know there's only one righteous one, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And until we acknowledge that, we won't find freedom from shame. And so, the last words Jesus says in verse 50 are, and she said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sufferer, trust Jesus. He is enough. Self-righteous, trust Jesus. He is your righteousness. Sinner, trust Jesus alone as the forgiver of your sins and the only one who can make you right with the Father. This faith is this picture of, as one pastor said, empty-handed receiving of all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. This faith is repentance. It is, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. That alone gives you justification in the courtroom of God. Forgiveness. You're saved, set free, Christ at Calvary experienced distance from the Father so that the shame-filled individual would never have to experience distance from the Father if they trust in Him. Jesus says, shame says dirty, the cross screams acceptance. Shame says rejected, the cross demonstrates a moment-by-moment fatherly embrace. So this encouragement to you and to me is we must look to this Savior of Luke 7, the conqueror of shame. And I end with just an application question or two. Some of you might say, why though? Why? If God is so big, so sovereign... Why does God allow me to dive back into some old patterns sometimes? Why does that happen? Well, first of all, I would say that sin is your choice. (laughs) But a dear friend came to me and he was beating himself up because he had battled with lust for years. And that pornography addiction did not 
characterize his life anymore. And he came and then he just said to me the other day, he was like, but then I, I fell, I struggled, started lusting after this individual. And he's like, I just started beating myself up and beating myself up and beating myself up. And I was just asking like, why, why? I was doing so well for years. Why, why, why? And the Lord, I felt like, just helped me in that moment that sometimes He allows you to do what you want to do so that you would realize every time you choose not to do what you want to do, you've been solely held up by grace. Sometimes He allows you to experience the consequences of your own choosing so that you would remember all the times you haven't experienced those consequences, all the victories you've won, and all of those victories have one name over every one of them. It is Jesus. It's Jesus. He has upheld you so that now you are not meant to carry around this massive bag of shame because of this one instance. You're meant to carry it to the cross. And to say, I owe my life to Christ and nothing else. I'm upheld by grace. Some of you are like, why does God allow me to experience this pain from others? Why does that happen? I don't know if you ever saw this video on YouTube. It was where this man rescued his puppy from an alligator. Did you ever see this? This thing went viral. Millions and millions of views. Here's what happened. His little puppy, while he was walking, it got away, ran. This alligator comes and snatches the puppy. This man says, I ain't letting that happen. And he runs after this puppy, goes into the water, goes in, drags the alligator to the edge. Now, the alligator's a little small, but I'm sorry. If it's called an alligator, I ain't touching it with a 10-foot pole. And so it grabs this alligator up to the, to the, out of the water, sets it there, pries the jaws off of its puppy, pulls the puppy out, and shoes that alligator away. This guy was on the news for all of his heroism. It was just an amazing story of rescue. Now, here's my question for you. Who got the glory for that moment? The puppy or the man? The man. But what did it say about the puppy? You're so valuable. I would risk my life for you. Now you might ask, why does God allow some type of suffering or pain in my life? I don't know all the answers to that. But I know at least one. The answer is this, so that when Christ rescues you, there's one person that is seen as the one who is most glorious and you are shown that you are loved and valuable. The trials of our life provide a platform for God's glory to go viral. The trials of our life provide a platform for God's glory to go viral. The world takes notice when our God is seen rescuing, providing, supporting, caring for us, not apart from suffering, 
but right in the middle of suffering. And as a Christian, our greatest joy is that our God get glory from our lives. And so what does he say to this sweet woman in the midst of all of her pain? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Do you know this word has only been used three times in the book of Luke and every one of them associated with the narratives that we read at Christmas? The word peace. Luke 1, 2, and Luke 2. Three times it's used. Why? Why? One of the most famous is when the angels are singing. You know it, right? Glory, shake off your Christmas hat. You know, you got to shake off your, the cobwebs and get, get with me in Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The next time it's used, right here in our text. Go in peace. But I thought peace was only for those with whom he's pleased. And he looks at this woman, a woman of the city, shamed, a sinner. Your faith has saved you. Go with the pleasure of God all over you. Go in peace. The woman with blood, the very same thing said to her one chapter later. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The father goes with the sinner who is trusted in him. His pleasure is upon you. Trust him. Come to him in the midst of your shame. And let's all go together as ambassadors of his peace to a lost world who doesn't know what to do with shame and is looking for a hope. Let's give him Jesus together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, I ask that we would wear these words, these words of Jesus, and we would take them. We would take them with us by faith alone. Faith alone. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Father, I pray that we would walk out of here with the smile of God upon us, not because we are the righteous ones, but because we trust that you are. Father, I pray that those who are battling with self-righteousness, they would just confess that. I pray that where self-righteous words have been spoken, they would confess that to those they spoke it to. Father, I pray that you would help us all to find forgiveness and freedom and that we would together, on mission for Jesus, we would together find peace. God, I pray for any unbelievers in this room that they would surrender their lives wholly to Christ as their only hope for the forgiveness of their sins and that they would trust in Him alone and they would find freedom from their shame and guilt. Father, we pray, be near to us and help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.